when I was a young lad growing up in Queensland, the landscape of participation in sport was different. I remember meeting up with local kids down at the park, in the street or in the backyard. We would bring a bat and a ball in cricket season or a football in football season. We made our own rules and the games were only finished when it got too dark to see the ball or when the owner of the ball went home. There were no coaches, no parents, and we played because it was what we lived for. That concept of sport for fun seems to be lost, but there are some in the footballing landscape within Australia who are trying to recapture the philosophy of football for fun. If you have been around a football field in Brisbane over the past few years, there is a real chance that you may have seen one person who is committed to making football fun for kids. Martin Doherty is the coaching director for Football Brisbane and the creator of the Browns Plains Mazda Football Fundamentals Guide. In 2019, he took this program to 55 clubs and mentored and coached over 1,100 coaches. His purpose was simple, to build a love for football by playing fun games. And his view was the best way to do this was in a safe, fun and organised environment where children learn by doing. And coaches, well, their job is to get out of the way and let kids play. In part one of the Gospel According to Martin Doherty, we hear about a young boy who fell in love with football in his hometown of Linwood, Scotland. His move to Australia where he played in the State League and then his journey of discovery into coaching and coach mentoring. This is a very interesting story from one of the most positive, knowledgeable and passionate people in football. Firstly, I want to ask you about what position you're currently in and what that role entails. Firstly, thanks for the invite for the interview. I'm really excited actually to do this, to be honest with you. My role is the Zone Director of Coaching for Football Brisbane. Effectively, Football Brisbane's got 77 member clubs. So my role is to go into the clubs and work with the mums and dads, the fundamental coaches that have never coached before and set up a coaching process or coaching idea for them in order to bring football to life so that the kids can begin to love the game. As we know, the clubs are busy doing their administration work and all the rest of it. So I'm an extra resource for them that I can go in there and physically show them what a grassroots coaching session looks like, physically what it looks like. And I'm not saying that clubs don't do that at the moment, but other clubs are that busy doing other things that their mums and dads with the kids at the very, very beginning of the coaching journey are sometimes forgotten and not given the opportunity to start from the very basics, from the fundamentals as in how to kick a ball or how to run a ball in an organised, safe practice area. When you took on this role three years ago, mm -hmm. what were the hurt points and what were the issues you saw in this area? It's funny because um, when I, I got the job originally, I almost had a blank canvas. And in saying that, I've got to pay respect to Kerry Hammersley that now works with Football Queensland. She's a female football development officer for Football Queensland. We were tasked with the job of creating a fundamentals guidebook, not realising how big the job actually was. Of course, I was aware that there were 77 member clubs, but didn't realise there was 27,000 participants. I didn't realise that the job was as big or as great because I'd done something similar in Cairns prior to me moving to Brisbane. I didn't realise that a lot of clubs don't spend a lot of time in the grassroots space. And again, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. There's not enough emphasis placed on the mums and dads, the beginner players, 
And my job then was to enlighten the players, enlighten the parents, enlighten the coaches, enlighten the clubs onto how simple it is to get kids onto the park playing football and beginning to love the game. Why do you think that clubs weren't focusing on that grassroots space? I don't think it was done in a deliberate way. I think what it was is because a lot of the clubs, as, as I mentioned before, are very busy in administration. Not much time was spent on coaching coaches. What used to happen, and it still does happen to a certain extent today, normally the parent or the coach that's coaching the under six or under seven team is normally the person that couldn't step away quick enough when the TD or the director of coaching or the club coach coordinator says, who wants to coach? More often than not, the parents will either look to the ground or step away. And the person that doesn't step away is usually the one that ends up with a bag of balls, bibs, cones, and you're the coach for the year. That's normally how it runs. You raised the point about parent coaches, and I think it's important to address it now. Yeah. One of the things that often happens is when a parent asks who the coach is, mm -hmm. the first statement they make is, isn't he or she a parent? Is that the wrong attitude to have as a parent and also as a club? It's such a hard one because, of course, more often than not, there's no other reason for that coach to be there on the fact that they are a parent and that they have a child in the team. And I think the perception is that, well, the coach shouldn't be a parent. Just digressing just a tiny bit. A number of the clubs now, it's not a policy, but what they are doing a lot with their senior players, like their under 16s, 18s and under 20s, they are getting me to come and do grassroots fundamental courses so that they then become the coaches of the under sixes, under sevens, under eights. So it's no longer a parent coaching the kids at that fundamental age. It's actually a player rather than the parent. So I think the perception is is that it shouldn't be a parent, but reality is who else is going to do it. At the ages you're referring to, who is actually the coach? I don't like using the word coach. I, I prefer using a team leader or facilitator because, of course, it's not about winning and losing at the grassroots stage. It's more about building a love for the game or igniting passion for the game. The coach is sometimes seen as the, the gentleman or the, the lady that walks around with their initials on there the front of their t-shirt and that's almost like a status symbol i think at the very very formative age the fundamentals age i don't think we should be looking at that i think we should be looking at maybe a group of parents doing it together or like as i just mentioned before under uh, 15 16 17 18 year old kids going in there and facilitating sessions for young kids let me take you back we played on the street we played in the backyard we played down the park it was organized by us our parents never were involved and we only went home when it was dark or the person with the ball was losing or when our parents called us in who is the coach in that space and is that learning less informative than what you're talking about it's called organized chaos at the very formative age and that's what it used to be the key thing about that i've got so many friends back in scotland that we still talk about street football in the no rules who taught you how to kick a ball? And I use this all the time when I do the fundamentals. I ask the question to the parent or even the player that might happen to be the facilitator or the team leader. Who taught you how to kick a ball? I'd say more than 80 or 90% of people say nobody. They learn on the streets. And I still believe to this day that we can actually go back to that rather than me showing a five, six, seven-year-old kid how to kick a ball or run with a ball. They will discover that's why in the FFA curriculum it's called a discovery phase. They can figure out what they can and what they can't do. We can guide them. We can help them rather than teach them as and show them. That's how we learned all those years ago. When you think about it, if you were lucky enough to be the one that started the game with the ball, 
you normally found you were out in the street on your own, heading the ball against the wall, or as we used to call it, we'd Kirby, where you'd be just chipping the ball against the curb. And then when your mates would come along, then you'd do a 1v1. Another one would turn up, there's your 2v1. There was no rules then. There was no structure. There was no, you can only do this, you can only do that. There was nothing prescribed. And I know we live in a different world now, a different environment, but I still believe we can still create that safe learning environment where kids can discover without fear. And that's what fundamentals, I think, is so important. How did your journey shape as far as your learning about football and youth development? I think the first team I ever played for was my Boy Scouts. And I was 13. That was the first actual game of football, team football. Whereas I, I'd been playing since I was five on the streets. I was in the Boy Scouts at 13. From there, I went to a boys club, which is still common in Scotland. That was Lit St. Convos. That was my school. So you played for your school that became a team. And that was your structured football that you had growing up. And clubs as such, that wasn't really something we did. Ours was more, you played in the school or you played in the street. That was our structured football growing up. And it wasn't very structured, I can assure you, because the coaches then were more sergeant majors, where you did a lot of running and not necessarily a lot of running with the ball or kicking the ball. It was a lot of running. Most of the football we got was learning ourselves out on the streets which actually made us better players, I believe. Well, it's interesting you say that. I spoke to Robbie Fowler, who's the manager of Brisbane Raw, mm. and he talked about how he played football since he was four or five, mm -hmm. but he didn't actually play football as we understand it until he was that 13 years of age. It's hard for Australian athletes or footballers to understand that there was no formalised football. It was that unstructured play that was so beneficial, particularly in Scotland and England. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but street football. That's effectively what it was. And I'll give you an example of two streets. Um, I can use um, where I was. Ours was Montrose Place. On Montrose Place, we had on our field, um, which had a pole right in the middle of it that said no ball games. That was our field. On the left-hand side was a generator. So you couldn't have a corner on the left-hand side. On the bottom right-hand side was a drain that if a ball went down there, you went down, then you had to basically get into a drain and try and get the ball out. On the right-hand side at the top, was a neighbour's fence that if the ball went in there, you don't get your ball back. The bottom left-hand side was basically the access to a, a, a second street. There was constraints there, when you think about it. We had no goalposts. There was constraints there that we realised there was conditions that, well, if the ball goes to that side, well, we might not get the ball back. If it goes down the drain, the game stops for five minutes until we get there, so we'll try and keep the ball away from that area. If the ball goes in the generator, there's a chance of you getting an electric shock, so try and keep the ball away from there. And you can't have a corner from that side because it's too close to the power. So you think, are they constraints? And nobody wrote down the rules. Nobody wrote down the rules. So the rules to the game were always different. That was grass I'm talking about. The street opposite us was concrete. It was a Baptist church was the goal. So that was a full-size goal. It was painted. The second goal was a half wall. So you had a six-a-side goal, if you want to call it that. You couldn't play 11-a-side because it wasn't big enough. So your players on the side, believe it or not, kicking the ball, doing what they do, active recovery as they call it now, that's what you used to do when you played your 6v6. If you had 20 players, there would be four on one side, four on the other side playing keepy-uppy. Winner stays on. No rules. So you think of that. Do the kids today, do they have that initiative? Do we give them that initiative? Do we give them that opportunity to actually come up with their rules? I think maybe they might surprise us if we actually do give them that opportunity. I don't believe in Australia we give them enough opportunity because everything is so structured, it's so prescribed, 
that you've got to do this, that, that, and that. And it's all at certain ages and certain stages as well. I'm interested to know that if, and let me get the name right, it's the Browns Plains Mazda Football Fundamentals. If you go to page two, it talks about the toes, touches on the ball, organized, enjoyable, and safe. Your generator field with the no ball games, how does toes measure up in relation to what you were doing? It's amazing. And you did get it right. Browns Plains Mazda Football Fundamentals being rebranded, by the way. On that note, and I think it's important to make this observation, it's really important that we get engagement from the whole of the community and that includes business to have a company to get on board at grassroots level it's really important is that you can't deliver a service without level of support paul woolley from browns plains master is if you get a chance of for people that listen to this jump onto your football fundamentals link on the football brisbane webpage and you'll see how committed paul is and browns plain master is to engaging community football they're not in it for financial benefits they're there to give back to the community and, and spot on what you've just said there it's so important for businesses to be involved at the grassroots because our sport is so top heavy grassroots to a certain extent is a given it's a given that it's going to happen it's forgotten we go oh, well kids will always play football anyway but a company like browns plains mazda actually committing they've given me a truck that i can drive around now be a mazda bt50 that i can put all my Football fundamentals, goals, balls, bibs, cones in there and drive around, not only promote their business, but promote football fundamentals in the, I suppose, the greater Brisbane community. And come back to that toes, wasn't it? That's yes, right. that's, so we're back to the toes because I'm interested to know when you measure what you did as a young child playing in those environments, does it meet all those standards with touches on the ball, organised, enjoyable and safe? I, I use the word safe. <laughs> because of the generator. Yeah. It was safe to us because we had, we had conditions, like I just said before, we had conditions that we've got to make sure we don't go there. As in, when we get in that area, we've got to somehow work our way out in that area. Is it a 1v1? Is it a 2v2? Is it a long cross? Is it a long pass? So players in that little pocket had to work out, well, that's as far as I can go here. I've got to do a little trick to get out of this tight area. There were skills, they call it perception, PDE. There's a perception, there's a decision they make, and there's an execution of the core skill that they might make based on the fact that there's a pole in the middle, there's a drain at the bottom, there's a generator there, or there's a neighbour who, if the ball goes in, we lose the ball. They're decisions that they make. Nobody wrote their rules then. Nobody told them, well, you've got to make this decision when you get into that area. You make that decision yourself. And nobody was ever there to say, oh, that was wrong. Nobody ever said that. So you, you were never corrected on what to do correctly the next time. You just, I suppose, went home and thought about it yourself. And go, oh, I wonder if that situation arises again. I might do this the next time. They're just things that you do as a player. So now when we look at the opportunity for young kids, particularly in Brisbane, 27,000 players, yeah. on reading the vision that you've created and the concept or the program that you've created, it occurs to me that the, I guess the overarching message is that you don't want coaches to get in the way of child learning. Absolutely. The fundamentals guidebook, as you flick through it, is organized and is structured. So I'm sort of contradicting myself a little bit there. But in the environment that we live today, this is simple to a certain extent that you don't need a coach to do this. The coach becomes the organizer, the facilitator. He or she stands at the sideline and the learning happens inside the frame by the players and coming back to toes, the learning happens when they're touching the ball. That's what it is. It's not about you do this, you do that. There's the framework. Here's what we're working on. Play. So the more touches, 
the more chance of success for that player. Yeah, and the more chance of them self-reflecting. And when I'm running with the ball or when I'm touching the ball, am I better with the top of my foot, the sole of my foot, the outside, my heel, whatever? Because everybody runs with the ball, everybody touches the ball differently. We are so structured and saying, no, you can only do this that we don't give the kids the opportunity to discover themselves. And again, coming back to the national curriculum, this is the discovery age. Why not let them discover? But just create the environment that's a safe environment that they will be allowed to discover. And it will surprise you what they actually figure out themselves. You've had an incredible journey in football. Your whole life has been about football. Why? Oh, I mean, obviously being Scottish, there's no other sport in Scotland and that's not been disrespectful to rugby union, that is, which is massive in Scotland. Cricket in summer, um, which is quite big, and tennis as well, which is very popular in summer as well. But tell me anybody in Scotland of the 5.7 million, I think it is, that doesn't know football, that doesn't love football, that doesn't understand football, and I'll show you a liar because that's in your DNA. That's what it is. It's, it's something that I got from my parents, and I'm sure my parents got it from their parents. It's just in your culture. And you mentioned before you spoke to Robbie Fowler. I'm sure he's given you a similar sort of answer. It's just in your DNA. That's what they're doing. It's still like that to this day. Even though FIFA and all the rest of it's taking over now, kids still get in the street and play football. It's just part of growing up. When you started playing organised football at 13, what were your aspirations and dreams? It's funny because I never actually had any aspirations or any dreams. I came from a, I wouldn't say a poor background, but I didn't come from a a wealthy background. I, I lived in a small village in Scotland and everybody was just the same. We were all the same. Yet the village I come from, if you want to Google it, Linwood, it's got some unbelievable footballers that actually came from it. Um, there's a Billy Thompson that was a goalkeeper. Dixie Deans, a player that played for Celtic. And uh, please excuse me, anybody from Linwood that's listening to this, but um, if I've missed you, I'm sorry. But Paul Lambert is probably the biggest name that's come out of Linwood. He played, obviously, for Celtic. He played for Borussia Dortmund, and he played down in England, and he now manages in England. I think he's managing Ipswich Town. A big name, but uh, just coming back to your question, I never really had any ambitions because... All my friends were all just the same. We were all just players that just played out in the street. I trialled with St Mirren as a very young kid. And when I say trialled, it was more a West of Scotland invite that you got down to um, St James's Park, or 50 pitches as we called it, in Paisley. And you trialled there, but you never went there thinking, oh, here's my opportunity, because I never ever actually thought that way, to be honest with you. I was a centre-back as a player, but I never had any great aspirations to be a professional player because I never actually thought that was possible. That might sound strange considering the positive person that I am, but I never thought I had any great aspirations or that ability to be a professional player and it never really bothered me. But I had a great journey. Let's talk about the journey from 13 yeah. until when you started coaching. I think it paints a really good picture as to the type of coach you are. Mm. Can you maybe just give us a bit of a background yeah, on, so, on your journey? So that being the case, I, I played, this might sound really bad again, but I played for a team called Linwood Rangers in Scotland, even though I'm a Celtic supporter. Our villages was divided. Linwood Rangers was coached by Bob Mason and Jimmy Smith. Beautiful guys, really, really good guys. I think both of them have passed away now. They called my mum on a Thursday night, knowing that my dad wasn't home to see if I would sign for Linwood Rangers because they knew that her family was, I come from a family of six boys and one girl, all Celtic daft, excluding one that's a St Mirren supporter. But we're absolutely Celtic daft. But he called and asked my mum if Martin would play for Linwood Rangers. And my mum said, oh, I don't know. I would have to ask Phil, which was my dad, and I have to check with the family. Anyways, it turned out we had a, a sort of house meeting and I did sign for Linwood Rangers on one condition. 
And the condition was that I wasn't allowed to wear the shirt or tie in the house. I had to get dressed in the garden hut outside the house. So I played under 16s. I went on to under 18s with them and I was always playing up. So I was like the younger player playing up. So, and again, coming back to that ambition, I never classified myself as a great player, but I was always, for whatever reason, playing up. I was in the under 18s when I was 16, 17. I was in the under 21s when I was 18, 19. So I was always playing up. So I must have had some sort of ability. I went out to trial for a few junior clubs, as we call them in Scotland, and that just never worked for me. But I got the opportunity to come to Australia as I was 22, 23. And I played in the State League in Sydney um, for uh, a team called Kingsford Hellenic, who are no longer there. And I was picked up by a famous Scottish coach, Joey Watson. You had Sydney Olympic, you had Eddie Thompson, who was the coach of Sydney Olympic at the time. So they actually picked me, but I was in the state squad. That was an unbelievable standard, all ex-professional players. So I played there for three years in the State League in Sydney before I transferred all the way to Cairns. I went up there, my wife and I, Phyllis was my girlfriend at the time, but she's now my wife. I met a really good friend of mine, Mario Devecchi. I actually met him through playing indoor soccer. And from there, he got me to his club, which was Lycard Football Club. And I spent 20 years at that club as a player, captain, player coach, end up the coach, junior director of coaching. 20 years I spent there from 1990 to 2010. I spent a very successful time as a player, as a coach. Uh, in the junior ranks and the senior ranks and a club that I absolutely love. It's got a lot of memories. They they were so good to me in that time. And that time as well, I was the, I was the captain of the FNQ team uh, that travelled in the state league, the old 40, 4X Cup. Which is the far north Queensland team. Yes, that's right. F, FNQ Taipans, as we were called at the time. I was the captain for that team for a number of years. We were very successful coming down to Brisbane playing here. From there, left Lackard in 2010 as I said and that's when I was introduced to Chris Collins who took me on board as the COE coach Centre of Excellence coach and part of the the new NPL regime that was coming through at that time it was um it was more a state league program before it became the NPL program so I then became the under 19s coach and I coached their under 19 team in the local competition in Cairns which was probably one of the best things I think I've ever done from a coach development point of view. I had these talented players that just allowed them to play and play freely without any fear of winning or losing because I just wanted them to get and express themselves. And Chris Collins gave me the, the green light to do that. And he introduced me to community coach education. When did you start moving into the space of coaching? It's funny because, um, so if we said 2010, I finished at Lycard. It was actually 2001 because I snapped my cruciate ligament. So that's when I became the youth team coach at Leichhardt. In my year off, my year of rehab, I became the youth team coach. And it was something I absolutely loved. I had a good friend, Steve McCaw, that was my assistant. And both of us almost identical with regards to uh, mentality. We were winners. We were driven to win. But we were driven to win in different ways. He was more a physical way and I was more a technical, tactical way because I was just, I'd just started my coaching journey then. I'd just done my, I think it was my level one in Townsville and I thought oh this is different it was it was putting a lot of things into place it was putting a lot of ideas that I use the filing cabinet analogy where we all everybody has a filing cabinet some of us are really tidy with a filing cabinet others are not so tidy I classify myself as a tidy person that I have things from A to Z if I ever need anything from a coaching point of view I just go into the the B file or the C file or the D file I pick it out and it's there when I first started my coaching journey my filing cabinet was the messy one 
because I'd all these ideas, all these, because I'd been with so many good coaches. I didn't know where anything fitted. But when I went to do my first coaching course, I thought, oh, this makes sense. So it allowed me to then tidy up my filing cabinet, so to speak. And that got me going. So that was 2001 I did that. And then you continued to coach throughout that time? Part of that time, I'd been a player coach at Leichhardt FC because not a number of times the coaches would leave mid-season. And the club had that much faith in me. that said, can you just step in and be the player coach to the end of the season to make sure that we get over the line, we get to the finals or whatever it happened to be, whatever the goal, where the objective was for the year. I did that. And that was, again, that was a learning moment for me as well. I had a lot of good players around me at the same time that did help me. I must admit there was a number of good players that did help me along the way. How would you describe yourself as a coach during that time? That space was a funny one because I still regarded myself as a player. So it was really hard to distinguish between am I a coach or am I a player? I didn't really have a, a vision on how I wanted football to look like, if you understand. I had an idea of what a defender should be able to do and what a striker should be able to do, but putting it all together... I didn't really have a philosophy, so to speak. That was something I actually started working on very, very early because I thought if I want to take my coaching anywhere, I realised, and this was before vision and philosophy I got when I went on to the advanced coaching pathway, I thought if I don't have some sort of vision on how I want to bring it to life, then I don't have much credibility with the players around me and I'm probably not going to last in the game if I don't have some sort of written down vision or philosophy on how I want Martin Doherty's teams to play. Earlier on in the podcast, Martin mentioned Chris Collins, who introduced him into coaching at a representative level. Cairns has always had a very strong footballing culture, and it is people like Chris Collins who help foster and grow that culture. Martin sees Chris Collins as one of his mentors, so I wanted to ask Chris his view on mentors and the role they play in coaching. You're never going to become the best you can be without three or four good mentors. Uh, and I was lucky to have three or four good mentors in my early days. It's sort of a nice accolade and a privilege that people like Martin actually uh, see value in mentorship. I've never seen myself as a mentor. I've always led by example. Never been frightened to bring people along with me. Never been frightened to sit people down. Never been frightened to make mistakes. Never been frightened to be challenged. All them traits. Martin certainly challenges anyone with his footballing knowledge, expertise, his his questions. Being a mentor means that you yourself definitely aren't always right. And being able to accept and reflect on the people around you, what they're saying, what they're doing, and then taking that on board. There's lots of things that can help build trust and help and guide. Being a mentor is a two-way street. Whoever you're working alongside, and I'm using the working alongside rather than mentorship, there's times I've looked at Martin and went, wow, I never thought about that. In a sense, I guess Martin might have been a part mentor for me. The word mentor sort of doesn't sit greatly with me, just more of a, being a leader and advocate for what we believe is right in football. To this day, you've still got grassroots skills training, game training courses. Chris would invite me down to the courses, initially as an observer, to see how a coaching session actually runs. He gave me the opportunity to say, look, if you want to become an instructor, you've got to come on these courses with us and then start delivering the model sessions and then delivering the theory part to it as well. Most of the courses were over two days, three days or four days. And that was a great introduction for me because, again, it was another way of me tidying up my filing cabinet as well. I was always learning and learning from somebody like Chris that's been in the game for a very long time and very well credentialed and respected in the football community. So him giving me an opportunity to A, coach the best group of kids in the local competition, B, 
be allowed to be part of the coach education and then C, to even allow me to be part of the FNQ Bulls coaching team as well, which was, I basically got a win-win situation because everywhere I was, I was learning off people all the time. I want to narrow into youth development. Can you give me a bit of a background how you moved into that and why you developed such a passion for it? If you come all the way back to, you talked about my ambitions, did I ever think I could have been a a professional footballer? I thought, I never really thought about that as a kid. A number of players that you get in talent identification programs all have the same goal. They want to be a professional footballer. I think the reality is we know that I think it's less than 2% will ever make it to be a professional footballer. Part of talent identification for me was can I, without prejudice, select a player thinking he or she has got a possibility of getting to the next level? That's what I always thought is that can I pick the right people, not just their ability on and off the ball, but can I pick the right person? And that was something I always prided myself on, was picking the right people, not always the the best people, as in with the ball at their feet. I've I've made a number of mistakes along the way there, I'm sure. Mine's was the whole box and dice. It's the person, because talent is not just, I don't believe talent's not just on the field. Talent is off the field as well, and family surroundings. I think I fell into that because initially in coaching the under-19s team, I didn't have a say in selecting their players. Their players were handed to me and I was fortunate enough to get a very, very talented group of kids who happened to come from good backgrounds. And that was a, that was a thing I always, always thought when I'm selecting, moving forward, kind of look for similar types of traits in players. I've tried to sort of maintain that as I've gone along in my coaching journey. Do you recall your first experience at selecting a representative youth team? Yeah, oh, definitely. Again, coming back to the, the under-19s, I mean, we had like a, a backup team. It was almost like a reserve grade under-19 team. So I had to pick the best of the best to play against Townsville, to play against Mackay, to play against Rockhampton. So I had to make sure that the players that were the reserve grade players weren't forgotten. They weren't just reserve grade players. So some of their players would actually step up into a higher representative environment where they'd actually represent Cairns. And I'd be speaking to the coach of the reserve grade team as well, saying, look, if there's anybody that you think deserves an opportunity at the next level, let me know, because we'd always give them that opportunity. Because Cairns, as you know, it's a small population, but it's a football mad area. For them to get an opportunity to play at another level, well... Why wouldn't we do that? You've had a fair amount of experience coaching representative teams and selecting representative teams or doing some talent identification. How hard is it uh, to get it right? Oh, I think you know, there's no such thing as getting it right. I think it's when you're, again, I use my, my motto of honesty and integrity. I think if, um, if I'm honest with myself, I've picked right. If I've kept my integrity, I've picked right. And I'll use an example of a, of a player in Cairns that, the family, we were really close to the family. They helped me in one occasion setting up a field and they supplied me a set of goals. Their son, who was a good player, I couldn't pick him in the final squad for one of our representative teams. It was actually for, I think, UFC Heat. And I explained the reason why. And it was more about his ability than it was anything else. You know what I mean? He was a great player, great kid, a great family. But there was something in my if I'm going to be honest, my integrity is going to remain intact. I can't pick this kid because if I do, I'm actually picking this kid for the wrong reason. I'm actually, there's somebody else going to miss it here because there's a, it's almost like a conflict of interest because I know the parents 
I'm just going to pick this kid. And I didn't think that was the right thing to do. That was a hard thing to do. I always felt comfortable because I always felt I did the right thing. And I'm glad I did that. I don't speak to the family as much as what we used to, which is disappointing. But I think if you're going to be honest with yourself and picking representative squads, I think it's the hardest thing to do because what is a great player? I think everybody knows what a good player looks like, but it's that under underlying player, the hidden talent is how do we select that player? That's that's the other part that we, I, I wouldn't say that we don't look at very much, but I don't think we, we're very good at it at the moment. Would you agree that it's probably important for young players to be able to deal with that sort of rejection or disappointment? Yeah, I think we all know that the word is resilience. If the coach or the manager can tell the player honestly why they weren't picked or selected, give them some tools, give them some ideas on how to not necessarily get picked next time, but put themselves in a better position to be chosen the next time, then that's great. But if it's just gesture token, stuff like, I'll get your first touch right, I'll get you running with the ball better or checking your shoulder more often because they're just generic things. I think if we can give them something that's tangible that the kids can get in practice or in their team environment that they can actually get better, if they can go to their coach in their club environment and say, look, I've been told by the representative coach that I need to start working on this. Maybe the coach might build a session around the kids scanning, getting aware his first touch or her first touch, simple things like that, that are not generic, that are real. I think if coaches can be a little bit more direct and honest in telling them the reason why you didn't get selected is this. And it has to be something that's tangible that the kid can actually go out and practice, whether it be at home or in their team environment. Is it common for representative coaches to provide that level of feedback? Well, I think it should be part of your job, to be honest with you. But is it a practice that someone with your experience sees coaches doing? I don't think they do it as well as they should do. That's my personal opinion. A lot of kids are left hanging by the phone on, am I going to be selected or am I not selected? And when they're not selected, they don't get any feedback. I think you've got to get something that's not generic. And that's the point I'm trying to make. More than anything, it's not generic. It's got to be something tangible that the kid can actually go out and practice or give to their coach that they can actually manufacture sessions, that they can actually bring that football problem or that whatever they're not good at to life. What is something practical a coach can do in the selection process or the trial process to be able to have that non-generic specific advice to a player at the end of the process? I did it with the under 13 state team this year, the Queensland boys. We see accountability all the time. I like to allow players to contribute. I'll give them a framework, for example, and we're going to work on playing it from the back or something like that. And I'll allow the players to then set their own rules, set their own framework, set their own guidelines, set their own expectations. I'll allow them to do that. And believe it or not, that takes you all the way back to street football. That's how it used to be. We didn't do it in a formalized way. You had your contributors on the streets. You had your leaders on the streets. You had your battlers on the streets. You had your people that were unbelievable players on the streets. But it was not structured and it wasn't formalized. I tried to do that last year with under 13 state team in a framework that this is what we want to achieve today. Now go out and bring it to life. And the kids, they shocked me about how much they actually knew because I created a safe environment for them. Actually, myself and Pat Hedges created a safe learning environment that they didn't fear that if I do this, I'll get hammered by the coach for doing it, whether they class it wrong or incorrect or whatever. We'd ask them the questions, 
why did you do it that way? Creating a learning environment. And I think, as well as rep coaches, I think club coaches can learn that a lot. We've got a structure, we've got a philosophy, we've got a playing style, but allow players to contribute a little bit more rather than telling them all the time what you want because it might not be achievable and it might not actually be correct at the same time. Pat Hedges is the Football Queensland High Performance Coach for Boys and has a wealth of experience in coach education and talent identification. He has probably picked more state teams than anyone else in Queensland. So I popped in and asked him about the difficulties of selecting without bias. It's one of the things that draws me to mine is he shares an honesty and integrity that I really believe in. So he will make the right decision in his mind regardless. I've been there a multitude of times. It's happened when we were really, really close family friend and probably for five, six years they never spoke to me. It happened to me with another individual who was a huge sponsor. Honesty, integrity is everything. Over the years, it's probably happened to me half a dozen times. And apart from that last particular gentleman, the other four or five people have seen me in the street 10 years later and said you were right. And they respected the fact that I was honest right from word go. I think the issue, if you do it any other way, you're just going to lose credibility for the other 99%. Football hasn't got a very good reputation at the moment, has it, in regard to people that we hear about, nepotism and jobs for the boys. I think honesty and integrity is absolutely everything. From a practical point of view as well, when you're going through the selection process, do you take notes? All the time. I don't make big notes. More often than not, an experience tells you you make lots of mental notes. What I try to make sure I don't do is use anecdotal notes. Because a lot of people say, oh, he or she's a really good player. And the next person will go, yeah, I agree with you. But won't add anything onto it because they're really good at finding space when the area's really tight. There's a lot of people jump on the bandwagon and agree. I think it's important to make notes, mental notes. I think seeing games live, seeing training sessions live, experience tells you you can pick. If you try not to stay ball-centric, if you can look at the big picture, there's certain things that you can see as a coach. There was an older gentleman, I had Tom Boy, unfortunately passed away, that it was a mentor of mine. And I always remember he used to sit on my bench at Leichhardt. Two seconds, three seconds before the ball would go in, he would go, go. And I used to turn around and say, how do you know that? He was in his 80s when he passed away. And he said, I've been around so long, I can see things happen before they happen. And it was a thing I learned because I used to sit on a Monday morning, every Monday morning with him on a mentoring session. I'm going back in the early 90s. I used to sit and listen to him. He used to say, zone out, take the blinkers off, see the big picture, and then you can come back in to the part of the game that you're focusing on, but always zone out first so you can see the big, big picture. And if you can see the big picture, that will be clear. Then you'll be able to zone in whether you're working on an individual player or a team player or a group session. It says, but zone out first, see the big picture, and then zone in. I think we do it opposite a lot of people, ball-centric, where they're just looking at the ball, not looking what's going on in front, behind, to the side. We're ball-centric. How important was it for you to have good mentors and helping you become better at your craft? I only classified him as a mentor a couple of years ago because I didn't know what a mentor was. But it's amazing in hindsight now when you think of people that you classify as mentors. My classification of a mentor is somebody that you can talk to without prejudice that will never judge you. It doesn't even have to be somebody in football. It can be anybody. They'll allow you to say, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? And they might go, yeah, that's fine. Or they might say, well, actually, 
and Tomboy was a great example for this because I'd say I'm thinking on playing it from the back and I'm going to do it with two players this week. I'm going to play my two fullbacks really, really high. And I go, oh, right, okay, well, why are you doing that? And I'd say, well, the opposition don't press us as much as they might sit off and let us sort of, they'll let my centre-backs get the ball. Then we can get into the front third a lot quicker. I go, all right, well, what are you going to do if they don't let you play it? So he'd give me the what if, and I'd go, oh, I never thought of that. I've seen them play this way before. He'd say, well, what are you going to do if they don't? So he wouldn't give me the answer. He'd just say, what if? What if they don't? And I'd go, well, I need to go back to the drawing board then and maybe reschedule my plan, my train session for the weekend. He would do that all the time. He was what if? He was never judgmental. He used to um, write me reports every week because I used to give him my game plan on a Friday on a Monday morning, and this is showing my age now, on a Monday morning when I got into my office in Cairns, on a fax was his match report. He would do a match report based on my game plan. He'd sit next to me, as I said to you, on the bench, never say anything other than goal. He would never give me any advice during the game, never. He'd come into my halftime team talks. He would do a halftime report for me on the fax on a Monday morning. So that was valuable learning from somebody that, had been in the game forever and the amount of learning I got from him on how to manage players and how to manage games and how to set up for teams and how to change during the game. That was a major thing that he taught me. Because you're playing a 4-4-2, you can always change it during the game and do that by giving a, a signal to your captain or to one of your players that's closest to you. That was a thing I learned of him many, many, many years ago. It appears to me that when you look at football now, there's two ingredients that I think you raise there that are really good points. And correct me if I'm wrong, you shouldn't do it alone and you should have more conversations. That doesn't tend to happen. There's a fear factor. A lot of people don't like to give it their knowledge or they don't like to share because they think, well, if I share everything with this person, he or she might end up taking my job off me. Coaches need more mentors. Players need more mentors. Administrators need more mentors, even referees. And that's where sharing comes in. I think if you share your experiences, you'll find a lot of times that people go, oh, that's happened to me before as well. This is how I fixed that. And that was my solution to it. And it might be different, might work, might not work. But I think if we come up with ways of sharing, I think sitting down and talking to somebody face-to-face and having a cup of tea or a cup of coffee is as good as it gets. We have reached the end of part one of The Gospel According to Martin Doherty. In part two, we learn more about Martin's coaching philosophy and also some of the personal challenges his family have faced and how football helped them along the way. Martin Doherty is somebody that I admire. He has an integrity, honesty and joy that is a rare commodity. I hope you can join us for part two. You can listen to Future Champions on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher or visit www.intentsport.com. (laughs) 